0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 4, verse 11 through 16. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thanks be to God. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I am uh, one of the pastors here. Unlike Jonathan, I did grow up in Southern Baptist churches, and that's as close to a drowning I've ever experienced in a baptism service. <laughs> That was awesome <laughs> but uh, we we are so grateful uh, to be able to do that, uh, and so it's very exciting. Uh, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Hebrews uh, going throughout this I was going to say spring, but today it feels like winter still uh, that's going to take us all the way to the end of the school year into the very beginning of the summer we're going to spend a number of months going through this book that's very packed with theology and deep truth and trying to kind of unravel it and, and hear about what it has to say about how we're to live our lives. So this morning we come to this passage at the end of chapter 4, these last few verses. I would remind you, for three weeks now we've been looking at chapters 3 and 4, and the main theme of chapters 3 and 4 in the book of Hebrews is the danger of unbelief. Okay, To illustrate this danger... The Hebrews writer quoted Psalm 95 in chapter 3, which retells the events of Israel's wilderness wanderings. And the summary of the chapters is that because of their unbelief, they did not enter God's rest. That is, they did not enter the promised land. So if you remember the story, you'll remember that those people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation of people died, and then God brought their children into the land that he had promised to them. But because of their rebellion and sin and unbelief, God did not allow them to enter. And so the Hebrews writer looks back at that event, right? And then he says to us and to those he's writing to, if we give up, if, as we travel through this life, which is a spiritual wilderness, we've said, if we give into unbelief like they did, then we, like them, will miss God's rest too. But for us, the rest of God is not a land, Right? The land was a symbol for something greater than the land. It signified for the people the place of God's blessing and provision and his favor. And the land that God offers us, you know, I could say it a bunch of different ways, but one of the best ways is if you look at the scripture memory verse for this month from Zephaniah Zephaniah 3, 15 and 17, you'll see that it describes the rest that God offers us there. That the rest is what Zephaniah says, that God is in our midst, God rejoicing over us, God delighting over us with loud singing, the prophet Zephaniah says. And what Zephaniah says that produces there is no fear. God, near, mighty to save, but also what it, that comes in and it makes my heart quiet, Zephaniah says. So you see, that's it, that's this rest, that you can live with God's love for you, his smile over your life so tangibly real, to your soul that it quiets your heart. It drains all the fear and the anxiety from your life and gives you joy and peace. And you can live under His blessing. See, that's what's that's what's being offered. And you see, Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. That's the point. Take Islam, for example. I heard somebody say it this way yesterday. It's just a fantastic way of just summing this up. He said you know, what's the real message of Islam? And the real message of Islam is, you die for your God. But Christianity is the exact opposite of that. The message of Christianity is, your God dies for you. Right? And so every other religion in the world offers a set of rules or rituals. And it says, do these things and you can achieve salvation. But Christianity is gospel. And twice in Hebrews 4, in verse, let me get this right, in verse 2... And in verse 6, if you have a Bible, Hebrews mentions the good news, the gospel that Israel did not obey. So it was the gospel. It was the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus, which Israel failed to obey. Christianity is news. It's not instruction. Okay? It's not instruction. Christianity is not about what us and what we must do and how we must change. It is news about what God has done about what he's done in Jesus to rescue us from sin and death and hell. And so the way you obey instruction then is you get to work to carry out the instruction, but the way you obey news is you rest and you rejoice. See? And if you notice, in the vows that Michael and Courtney just took, the way the vow that that is to get at whether or not they have saving faith in Jesus Christ, the way it's worded is, Do you now receive and rest upon the Lord Jesus as a savior of sinners? Right? So rest, saving faith is rest. Now, the problem, okay? Here's the problem. The problem is, is that the way our sinful hearts are hardwired, we are constantly being tempted to stop resting in Christ and to go back to trying to work for our salvation. Okay? So Steve said it great last week. He said it this way. He said the default setting of our hearts is religion. It's trying to find righteousness in good theology or a certain denominational affiliation or in being a good person to look to those things for salvation, to look to those things for righteousness. And that's what Hebrews 3 and 4 and what the Bible calls unbelief. And so the way you get to the end, remember, the way you push through and hold fast and get to the end, which is what Hebrews is calling us to do. It's being written to people who are, who are wanting to give up. And the way you push through and get to the end is you fight against that unbelief and you maintain your confidence and your confession in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you refuse to turn away from salvation by grace through faith in Christ and go back into a salvation by works system. So the concern of chapters 3 and 4 is that we overcome unbelief and through faith enter into God's rest. But there are three things, in summary, in these verses that help us and that kind of sum up everything we've seen in these these two chapters. If that's true, that the main concern is that we overcome unbelief and through faith enter into God's rest, then we need, first, a tool to expose our unbelief. Secondly, we need a truth that can heal our unbelief. And then we need to sit and really take a look at what this passage offers as a test to really discern whether we're still living in unbelief or whether we've truly come to saving faith. So we need a tool, we need a truth, and we need a test. And all three of those things are here, and they rhyme, and that's good news, right? We are smoking it this morning because we have three points, and they all they all start with the same letter. So a tool, a truth, and a test, Okay. So let's just go through these patches together. Can we do that first? Let's start with the, the, the tool. We need a tool for exposing unbelief. And that tool is the word of God. Look at verses 12 and 13. Okay, well, excuse me, let's start in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active. So the Hebrews writer links these two together. Do not strive to enter the rest don't fall by the same sort of disobedience, and the word of God is living and active, okay? Now, quick review, really quick. Uh, if the danger is unbelief, then what's so hard about fighting it is, and we looked at this two weeks ago, that by nature it hides itself from you, right? Do you remember this? Sin is deceitful, Hebrews 3.13. The way sin works in the soul is it works to hide itself from you, and therefore, the areas of, in your life where you're in the greatest spiritual danger are the ones you're not even aware of, and that's why they're so dangerous. Sin anesthetizes us. It blinds us to the true condition of our hearts. This is the way this works in my life. I find myself, Canaan can attest to this, I'll get aggravated with my children. They'll do something um, that I don't like. Uh, and so I'll get really aggravated with them, especially with the boys, because they tend to spend the most time with me. And so I'll turn to Ashley in the midst of my aggravation. I'll say, can you can you believe this? I mean, where did they learn that? And she will look at me with this strange mix of aggravation and pity as if to say, you really don't know, do you? <laughs> they learned it from you, dummy. And it's just this moment of, uh, oh, Right? Oh, I mean, this, and if this was every now and then again kind of thing, that would be one thing. This is like daily. I mean, I, I'm learning, I'm blind to the things I'm even doing to my children that I then am aggravated with them about. Because I can't, I don't have a mechanism to see clearly into my own heart. So what we need then is a tool to help us see our hearts more accurately so we can know where we need to repent and believe. We need a tool to expose our unbelief. And the tool is the word of God. The Hebrews writer says, strive to enter this rest. And again, I think Steve said it so well last week. He said, that means strive not to strive. And in your striving not to strive, use the word of God. Because it is living and active. Do you see that there? And that is, that is it's alive. And it gives life. There's a spiritual energy in the scriptures. The stories, like the story of Israel in Exodus 17, they're not just stories. They're living spiritual realities that come into the heart of the person who reads them or hears them and begins to work and to energize them. The Greek word active there is literally the word energo, energy. In other words, if you're spiritually dead or dull, the scriptures are a life source for you. They're like the energy drink at 2 in the afternoon when you're fading that all of us are addicted to. Right? They work. They work on the heart to change you. They're living and active, he says. And so, a very quick application then. If you neglect the reading and studying and memorizing of the Scriptures, you do so at your own peril. The Scriptures are God's living and active source of working in your life to bring you to a continual state of faith and repentance. Don't neglect them. But let me ask, then: How, if the scriptures are the tool, then how do they work? And the Hebrews writer goes on, if you look there in verse 12, to say that they work like a sword that penetrates and divides. And there are two ways that you can kill somebody with a sword. You can stab them. Or you can cut them in two. And that's what the scripture does. That's what those words mean. That's how it works. It's a sword. And when, when, the, when Hebrews mentions it being a sword, when, when, when the writer uses this, this analogy or this illustration, he means a couple of things. He means, I think first, that the scriptures unmask us. John Piper said it best, I think. He said, scripture penetrates to the bottom of our lives and rips the pleasant mask off the ugly face of sin. Isn't that a great statement? Scripture penetrates to the bottom of our lives and rips the pleasant mask off the ugly face of sin. What does he mean? He means the Scripture penetrates past all of our self-deception and helps us see what's really true of our hearts. It it exposes the sins that have been hidden from us by, there in verse 12, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That is, Scripture probes and uncovers and reveals the true state of, of our hearts, which is always worse than we think. I mean, sin is far more pervasive than we ever could imagine. It goes far deeper than we really realize. I remember a pastor friend of mine one time using the illustration of an iceberg to describe this. And the, 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 way, the reason uh, the analogy of an iceberg is a fitting analogy for the way sin works in our lives is what, what scientists tell us is that you can go and see these incredibly you know, enormous icebergs coming out of the water, but what people know what, what we know is that no matter how big the iceberg is, only ten percent of the iceberg is actually showing. The other ninety percent of the iceberg is hidden underneath the surface of the water. And you see that's that's a really fitting analogy for, for sin because a lot of times when we think of sin and we, we kind of diagnose it, we only diagnose it, we only think about the ten percent that's actually sticking out of the water and we forget about the ninety percent that's underneath. What Scripture does is Scripture digs down below the surface of the water and reveals how big that thing is. So Richard Lovelace says, and this is just one of those life-altering sentences, okay? He says, our understanding of sin focuses upon behavioral externals, which we can eliminate from our lives, little by little, with willpower. But it ignores the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness, and hostility beneath the surfaces. And you see, that's what Scripture does. Scripture penetrates beyond the behavioral externals that we are so prone to focus on. And it reveals the submerged continents of pride and selfishness and fear. And by doing this, by exposing us in this way, the second thing it does is it wounds us. See, that's what a sword does, right? It wounds, it kills, and the wound that the scripture provides for us, which is actually a wound that that heals rather than destroys, is just this, this is the wound, you ready? You can't save yourself. See, that's our heart's secret hope, see? See? That I can be good enough to save myself. That I can work hard enough to save myself. But the scripture works to say, okay, even if you're good, you go to church, you help people, you give your money away, right? You, you follow the rules, you do these things. But underneath all of that religious activity, if you dig down deep enough, you're full of pride. Your real motivation is selfishness, not love for God or for other people. I mean, even if you look pretty good on the outside, externally, there are submerged continents of sin you're not really even aware of and that you're powerless to change. You can't save yourself. That's the wound. And the reality is, is we spend so much time playing dress-up. Trying to hide the truth about ourselves, even from ourselves. And we work hard to achieve success to try to hide. Or we are nice to people to get them to like us to try to hide. Or we're good and follow the rules to try to hide. But what this passage of scripture teaches us is there's no hiding. Look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You cannot hide from God. He sees the submerged continents of sin, the unedited thoughts, the hidden motivations and desires that are so corrupt and base we can barely acknowledge them ourselves. All of these are like an open book to the eyes of the Lord. And the result is we are naked and exposed. F.F. Bruce, in writing on this, commenting on this passage, said it this way, and I thought it was very helpful. He said, We may conceal our inner being from our neighbors, and we can even deceive ourselves, but nothing escapes the scrutiny of God. Before Him, everything lies exposed and powerless. And it is with Him, not with our fellow men, or with our own conscience, that our final reckoning has to be made. Stripped of all disguise and protection, we are utterly at the mercy of God, the judge of all. There is no mask we can use to disguise ourselves. There is no strategy we can use to protect ourselves. We have no defense which exonerates us. We are naked and exposed and at God's mercy. So if the scripture does its job, it will wound you. It will cause you to feel feel that, right? Not just to feel that, to experience that sense of being naked and exposed. And then the question is, is, what then? Right? See, whether you persevere in faith or give in to unbelief is determined by your reaction at that moment. And what separates a non Christian from a Christian is that a Christian doesn't try to hide. That's the most natural response, right? That's the most frequent, the most obvious response. I'm naked and ashamed. What am I going to do? I'm going to hide. What did Adam and Eve do in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the scripture? They hid. But what the text says is that what makes a Christian, is a Christian is something absolutely phenomenal. It says a Christian is a person who knows that they can be naked and exposed and confident. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I've never one day in my life been naked and confident. Okay? <laughs> the best I've ever looked is the day I got married. And that's because I worked my rear end off in the gym... For six months prior to getting married. Why? Because I knew nakedness was coming. Right? You with me? And even on that day, I can tell you, I was not naked and confident. But what the scripture says, and parents, I'm sorry if I'm creating work for you later today. It's a good, it's a good segue into some really great theological conversations. What the scripture says is what makes a Christian a Christian. A Christian is a person who can be naked and confident. Isn't that great? See, a Christian is a person who can sing and mean it from their heart the, the lines of the old hymn Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Do you know the words? Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee. For grace see that's saving faith and so how do you find the freedom because that really is the word right or the courage or the faith to not hide when you feel naked and exposed right to not try to cover your nakedness with some kind of fig leaf righteousness but to come to jesus with nothing all you need is nothing right But the one thing nobody has is nothing. Your heart's always looking for something. Your heart always is looking to take you back into a system of works righteousness. But you won't enter his rest that way. The only way to enter his rest is to come to him with nothing and to let him clothe you. And that takes unbelievable courage and faith. So where do you get the courage? And it comes from the second part of this passage, which is that there's a truth. There's a truth that is so powerful and so profound that if it were to come into the center of our lives, it would change everything. And the truth is found in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus is our high priest who covers us and is compassionate towards us as we fight for faith. So let's read verse 14 together again. Since then, we have a great high priest who, able, who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See, that's the truth. He is our high priest who has passed through the heavens. Not just a priest, But a high priest, and that's important because the phrase there in verse 14 highlights the function of the high priest on the day of atonement when he would pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies once a year to make sacrifices for the rest of God's people. And he was there as their legal representative, their stand-in, so to speak. And because the high priest was to act as the legal representative of his people, he had to be like them. He He had to be representative of them. Right, unlike our government these days, most of the time. The high priest had to be a perfect representative he had to be a perfect representative of the people for whom he was standing in in God's presence. And that's why the Hebrews writer makes this point here and in chapter two that Jesus is and has been made like us. Chapter two, verse seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest. I mean, this is what we read here in verse 15. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness because, look at it, he was tempted in every respect as we are. I mean, do you know what that means? It means Jesus was tempted, let's do a list, to lie, to save his life or his reputation. Jesus was tempted to covet all the nice things that Zacchaeus owned. He was tempted, kids, to dishonor his parents when they were being more strict than other people's parents. He was tempted to take revenge when he was wrongly accused. He was tempted to lust when Mary wiped his feet with her hair. He was tempted to pout with self-pity when his disciples fell asleep in his last hour of trial. He was tempted to murmur at God when John the Baptist died at the whim of a dancing girl. He was tempted to gloat over his accusers when they couldn't answer his questions. In every respect. It's important. The temptation Jesus experienced was real temptation. Be careful of overemphasizing his divinity and say, oh, well, you know, he was God, so... I mean, you know, he wasn't... No, no, Lyle Caswell, I thought, said it great. He's a pastor friend in Lakeland this week in our preaching meeting. He said, Jesus didn't come out of Mary wearing a red cape. Right? He had to struggle and to win in order to accomplish our salvation. And the Hebrews writer is very, very careful... He's very careful to show that Jesus shared our humanity and was tempted in every respect as we are. But look there in verse 15 with one important difference. Yet without sin. Tempted in every respect, yet without sin. And that set him apart from every other high priest that had ever come. Because all the other high priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves even as they offered sacrifices for the people because they were sinners too, but not this high priest. And that means he performs a better function. He provides a better salvation than any high priest before him ever does. The truth of the gospel is just this, that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. In both his life and his death, he was our stand-in, our legal representative. And here's what that means. It means that our sins were credited to him on the cross, and he died in our place condemned in our place but it also means that in his life through his unflinching obedience he has won for us a righteousness that is ours by faith and the righteousness of Jesus can be credited to us through our faith in him so the gospel you if you want to do a little gospel summary that's kind of a neat way of thinking about it. the gospel is just this that Jesus the eternal son of god hung naked on the cross so that we who are naked and exposed could be clothed in his righteousness That's the gospel. But not only, this is, my favorite, this is my favorite part, you ready? Not only, it gets better. <laughs> not only does he clothe us, he's also compassionate towards us as we continue to battle sin and unbelief. He sympathizes with us, verse 15 says. And so if you're a Christian, let me ask. If you're resting your heart's whole hope and confidence in Jesus, then he, then he is not angry with you when you sin. He's compassionate towards you. Did you get that? Look at the text. He sympathizes with us because he knows what it's like. He knows how hard the struggle with sin can be. He's not angry. He's compassion, compassionate. He's full of pity. The Greek word translated sympathy there literally means sympathos. It, it literally means to share in the sufferings of another person and therefore to have a heart full of compassion towards them. And you know what this is. I mean, we all know what this is, right? If you've ever walked with a loved one through a battle with cancer. Uh, my mom died of cancer in 1999. And so I'll come across people every now and then who will say, you know, my mom, my mom or my dad struggling with cancer. You know, because of my experience of that, it is easy for me to have compassion towards other people who are going through the same suffering. Right? If you've been to war... It's easy for you to pity other veterans because you've shared shared in that experience. You've shared the same kind of suffering. If you're a stay-at-home mom, right, with a bunch of preschoolers running around, uh, if you're a stay-at-home mom, then if you're not a stay-at-home mom, you might have been tempted to be aggravated. You're right when the Martinets were up here. But if you're a stay-at-home mom and you've got preschoolers, you're, oh my goodness, I know what that's like, right? No problem, no problem sympathizing. Why? Because, you know, you, you... you're sharing a similar suffering. And so it's easy for, you know, it's easy for stay-at-home moms of young children to step in and help other stay-at-home moms with the young children. Why? Because you don't even have to think about what to do. You know the kind of help they need. Why? Because you need the same help. Because, because you've been there. And do you see how wonderful this is? Jesus has faced temptation to a greater degree than any person in this room or any person in the history of humanity because he went deeper into it than anybody's ever gone because he never gave into it. He has shared that suffering with us. And therefore, therefore the reflex, if your faith is in him, is, I've, this, I've been praying this truth would sink home to hearts. If you're a Christian, then the reflex response is of God's heart for you in Christ in your sin and weakness is compassion. Not anger. Not judgment. Not condemnation. He's not frustrated with you. He's not disgusted at you. He's not disappointed in you. He's full of compassion towards you. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who's been tempted in every respect as we were yet without sin. So that's the tool. And that's the truth. But thirdly, this passage gives us a test. A test of true faith. To discover if you're resting in Christ or if you've drifted back into trying to work for your salvation. And again, the reason we need a test is is that our hearts are so deceived. There are many people in this room that think they're Christians, but in truth, they're just religious people. And so the test, the test is absolutely necessary for us to be able to diagnose these things. And the test is found there in verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the summary of that verse could be something like this. We can come boldly to God. That is... We can come to him with confidence and full assurance that he is for us, that every obstacle to his love for us has been removed, that his anger against our sin has been satisfied by Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest, who offered himself as a propitiation for our sins. That means that all of God's wrath came down upon Jesus instead of coming down upon us. He stood in for us on the cross, and because... He was treated by God as we deserve to be treated. Therefore, now we are treated as He deserves to be treated. And that means we can come clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ before God's throne of grace without fear of being judged or condemned, but fully confident that He loves us and is compassionate towards us. <laughs> because His throne is a throne of grace. See that? Now, I said a test. Because there's really two different ways, two different kinds of people and two different approaches to this that that are going to help you get inside of this. And I just need a couple more minutes and then I'll be done. Because you see, I want to first describe a person who's unsure of God's love for them. A person who's not resting in Christ. A religious person or a person who's trusting in their own good works to save them can't confidently draw near because they can't ever really be sure they've done enough. And so they'll be living in, in unbelief. And Richard Lovelace. I want to quote him again. He describes this person who, in his words, is not sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus. So there's not this confidently drawing near in this person. He says, here's how he describes this person. They are radically insecure, and their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensiveness, defensive criticism of others. They come to hate others in order to bolster their own security. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. And so he says unbelief, ultimately what it produces is insecurity, no confidence in approaching the throne of, of grace, which leads to being very, very critical of other people, being very defensive, being, there being this, this sense of just pride and arrogance and self-righteousness that causes you to hate people who are different than you because you, you, you need for people to hate them so they'll love you. It's a good description. Unfortunately, I've been a pastor for... 15 years now. And unfortunately, it's a good good description of a lot of people who call themselves Christians and go to church every week. And if that's you, let me be your friend and say, repent and turn to Jesus and rest in Him. Because if you come to rest in Him, then what's going to happen? If you stop trying to work out your own salvation you know, in, in your own efforts, according to your own strength, and if you turn to Jesus and rest in Him, then what will happen is, is there will be a fundamental security. There will be a confidence, a deep assurance of God's love for you in Christ that will come into your life. And so a person who's resting in Christ is confident that God loves them, and therefore, uh, just a couple of things. On one hand, they're very humble, right? They're not afraid to ask for help. A person who can't... Um, ladies, I'm giving you ammunition against your husbands. Ready? A person who can't ask for help has a fundamental problem with pride. I expected an amen from the women. I didn't get one. Right? Because I say, that. what is faith? What is faith? Faith is, I need help. I can't do this by myself. And so, on the one hand, very humble, but also there'd be a robust habit of prayer in a person like this. Verse 16 describes prayer. And so a person who's resting in Christ is a person who prays as a first resort because they understand that it's God's work, not their work, that really matters. Right? Very humble, but also, this is where, also very bold. In other words, they don't come before God with dread or an inappropriate, excessive reverence. So the person resting in Christ experiences a deep intimacy with God that makes Religious people very uncomfortable sometimes. There's joy. They're full of peace, right? They're not rattled by their circumstances. Why? Because bad circumstances doesn't mean God's left me. He's still for me. He's not punishing me. But there'd also be honesty, do you see? A willingness to confess sin and admit wrong. Not defensive, not afraid of critique, but there be a transparency to the way this person would live. All of these things, this, this coming boldly, what it means to live a life of coming boldly before, confidently before the throne of grace, and one of, my, it would make you more adventurous, right? Because your life wouldn't be limited by your weaknesses, because what does it say? Jesus can help you where you're weak. And so the reality of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, when the truth of it sinks down to the center of your heart, it will give you a deep, deep sense of security and assurance. This, this profound confidence in the love of God for you that will just begin to m- make itself known in so many areas of your life. It's Valentine's Day, and so to, to close, um, we've been reading, we always pull this book out at Valentine's Day around my house. And the, I mentioned it to you last year, and I'll mention it again. It's a book called Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch. And the story is the story of a man who really lacks confidence. He never, it, the, the story describes him in this way. It's great. He said, the story says he never smiles and he eats prunes for dessert goes over my kids' heads, but I think, I think it's funny. He, uh, he's shy and reserved and lonely and sad, and he barely even speaks to the people he works with or his neighbors until one Valentine's Day when he receives a heart-shaped box of chocolates with a note that simply says, somebody loves you. He has no idea who the secret admirer might be, but just the thought that somebody, it doesn't really matter who to him, somebody loves him, it, it energizes him, it fills him with confidence, and what happens is he begins to live differently. It's a great story. He, he's kinder. He's more generous. He stops and talks with people he previously just blew by. He helps his neighbors. He bakes brownies and makes lemonade and throws a party in the backyard and plays the harmonica and everybody dances. Right? His life's completely transformed. He goes from no confidence, from profound insecurity, to bold, adventurous joy. That is until the day when the postman comes to his door to tell him that the heart-shaped box of chocolates was meant to go to somebody else's house but something's happened see his coworkers and his friends and his neighbors miss the person he had become and when they find out the reason they throw a big party for him and they make a sign and go out into his front yard and the sign says everybody loves Mr. Hatch see what's the point of the story this text in Hebrews 4 assures us that there is somebody who loves us the most important somebody in the universe in fact and what it shows us is, is that it, the, the tool is there to diagnose our unbelief and to help us feel our nakedness and our being exposed so that we come to, the, we come to despair of ourselves. But the truth is there to, to show us that, that Jesus, we can be naked and confident, confident because Jesus loves us not because we're not sinners. He loves us in spite of our sin. And if that truth came into your heart and came into my heart, it would produce a confidence that would energize us toward a life of bold, adventurous joy. And that's what our city needs to see, see. That's what changes the world of people like that. So let's pray he'd make us like that, can we? Heavenly Father, we come to you now, confidently drawing near to your throne of grace, in our Lord Jesus Christ, who, as our faithful high priest, has covered us, that though we were naked and exposed before you, that when we go to you on the day of judgment, we will not have to give account for our lives because we will be clothed in the perfect righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing, we, we do not need to be naked and ashamed. We can be naked and confident. And I pray that you make us so, so that even as we sing these songs at the end of our service, that, it, that, that, that truth would cause an eruption of adventurous, contagious joy to happen in our lives. I pray as we sing now that we would come confidently drawing near in these songs. If I pray for those who are here who, who have no, they, don't know, they don't know of that confidence and I pray that you would speak to their hearts and use the scripture to expose them and they might turn to you in faith and repentance. And so come now as we sing to you. Overcome our hearts with the truth of your love for us that we might glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're being sent out to strive to enter his rest. That is, to strive not to strive. (laughs) So as you strive not to strive, uh, the power to do that comes from knowing that the one who sends you promises to also go with you and be with you. So if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then as he sends you out, then he promises that he will go with you to be for you, to show compassion to you, to bless you. That is the promise of this benediction. Then receive this benediction, then by faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.